HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch, grass-fed beef raised on California's central coast. Now available online through Larder Meat Company. Learn more at hearstranch.com. This week on Meat and 3, we dive into the science behind munchies, the history of coca, the therapeutic powers of psychedelics, and mushroom-infused recipes. One of the biggest questions we get asked a lot is, does heat degrade psilocybin? The coca leaf was used as a sacred plant. So as a plant that could communicate human beings with gods or mother nature. What you can start to appreciate here is that cannabis is activating and hijacking the system throughout the body. Tune in to Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. It's November 2020. It's Cider Week NYC, and in the midst of the pandemic, I've got uh, my favorite cider, Eve Cidery, joining me uh, remotely from uh, way upstate New York. And uh, we're here remote recording at heritageradionetwork.org. So I want to quickly introduce my guests. Um, just a little backstory. Th- these really are some of the the top, you know, cider maker right here, um, world-class, you know, putting New York cider on the map. And I'm very proud to have you guys in 20, uh, 2018, we awarded you the second annual Scion award for cider week NYC. And, um, I w- I'm so happy to have both of you here. So let's please introduce yourselves both Ezra and then autumn. This is Ezra. Hey, Jimmy, thanks so much for having us on the show. It's such a pleasure to be here. Great. So it's Ezra Sherman and Autumn Stoshek from Eve Cidery. So let's just do a little backstory for our listeners. This is Cider Week episode, and we love hard cider. It's it's that time of year for hard cider. Um, way back when, when you tell us just how you got started, Autumn. You, you, what did you do? You had someone else's farm, and you started cultivating apples or planting apples and one day you went to Steve Wood and Farm Hill and you and you got some cuttings take me way back yeah so i i was working on an apple orchard in 1999 um the year that Steve Wood was uh the 
Fruit Grower of the Year in, in a trade magazine called Fruit Growers News, <laughs> which uh, graced the bathroom of uh, the employee bathroom where I worked in the orchard. And uh, that year I read about Steve and it was a story about yeah, how he was, uh, you know, sort of market in New England and had gone to, and had seen these crazy orchards in England where his wife had relatives and they took vacations and learned that the apples in England are being grown for cider. Well, this just kind of blew my mind because I was also waitressing at the time in at night after I worked all day on the farm and, you know, just getting into the world of wine and just sort of, you know, beginning to understand that, that there was specific variety, grape varieties that people grow to make specific wines that grow in specific places. And it seems like such a cool world to explore. And so when I read that article, it just sort of connected two of my loves and uh, yeah, I was, I don't, I, I think the way I remember the story is that I, I didn't even call Steve. I like got in my little Dodge Horizon and drove up there unannounced and it, it, which is kind of weird, but I guess I'm a sort of impetuous person. And Steve was very gracious and tasted me through his cellar and made me spit and uh, <laughs> And gave me a bunch of cuttings to take home, which was was the beginning, you know. And and if I had known at that time how long that journey would be and how much work it would take, I, I surely would have been put off. But because nobody else was really doing this back then, there was nobody to call and be like, "Oh, you know, what what is what is this? How do I do this? And what does it involve?" You know, I I just sort of like dove in head first, and I guess haven't really stopped. Well, you know, it's 99% perspiration, 1% inspiration for anything good. So, yeah, so keep going. So, you know, you, you found a forum. I, I really want to know the backstory because I've had Ezra on a couple of times. I've never really had you for the whole show. So I'm feeling really lucky today. Well, um, I, I hope I, I live up to your expectations. Ezra is the better storyteller because because he he's he'll tell you all the terrible, terrible, terrible disaster stories that we've yeah. had that are self-deprecating and very funny. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, so yeah. it's, it, it's, it's a long and winding road. And I think, you know, it, it might not be that interesting to talk about every single little detail. But one thing I would say for sure is that when we first started out, when I first thought about, you know, huh, wow, maybe I could do, maybe I could try to make a little business and do this. It was based on the idea that um, we would open this sort of tasting room at a UPIC orchard, the orchard that I was working on, James's orchard, um, because oh, we already have these customers. They're coming out here and there's all these apples that don't get picked in the orchard and or get graded out of, you know, the packing line when it gets packed for fresh fruit and all of that stuff. And that's how the idea started. And it's evolved like completely in another direction from that because I think you know that that's like that's probably a good idea for an orchard it's probably a good business model for a you pick orchard but it's it, at the end of the day that like 
the the interest or depth in that in that is is very superficial and it, it you know it's it's not something that's going to keep you inspired and engaged in making cider for the rest of your life so where we kind of turned and headed into a different direction was when we started getting into fermenting and realizing that the variety that we the varieties that are used in cider you you it's so so important and that's what it's actually all about and that it's not you know it's not for varieties that we were growing that were bred for fresh eating when they were fermented were rather insipid <laughs> and um and that sent us down you know a uh, like a path that turned it into just such a big long project because you know as probably your listeners know i mean an apple tree it's it's a perennial crop it's not an annual crop it takes a long time to get an apple off of a tree from the time that you have the idea that you want that apple you know to the time that it's growing and producing in an orchard and so you know the oldest orchards we have that we planted um are now 20 they're going into their 21st season well i going into the nitty grittiness or whatever of the sequence of events that orchard that you planted um 21 years ago how did that correspond with what what were you doing 21 years ago when you planted that orchard here in Vanetton with your dad it was basically you know, I, I was, was still making cider at the orchard or like, you know, thinking about starting the cidery at the orchard, but the, the cyan wood that I got from Steve, what I did with that was I went into James's orchard. He had this row of, it's going to come to me. It's funny. These things that you remember yeah. from like so long ago, <laughs> Vistabella, it was an apple called Vistabella. It was an absolute disaster of an apple that got ripe, like in the middle of August and tasted like styrofoam, then immediately dropped off the tree and started rotting. <laughs> niche for you pickers. <laughs> so, so I think James was like, you can have that row. <laughs> and so I made, I, you know, I, in the early, in the early, early spring before, you know, right, right before the apples bloom, we cut the, all the branches off the apples with, with uh, these trees, you know, fairly large trees, just leaving the trunks and some small branches and took the cyan wood from Steve and, and grafted it into the, into the cambium tissue of those trees. And that made trees, you know, that had a root system of, uh, you know, a 30 year old tree or whatever it was at the time that, um, pushed all of their energy into these little sticks that we had grafted onto them. And so it grew a bunch of fresh wood of the new variety, if that makes sense. And so once I had done that, I had this source for more cyan wood. And I think again, in that sort of like, well, I'm so impetuous. I didn't own any land. I didn't probably didn't, I didn't even have the business at that time, you know, but I thought, well, my next step obviously should be to make a bunch of trees so um, James's brother, Steve Cummins, uh, owns Cummins Nursery up here in Ithaca. And so I asked him, well, could I have a row in your nursery to, to, to stick some of these trees? So um, he taught me how to bud, which is a, a summer form of grafting. Um, 
where you stick the bud in the cambium tissue uh, once the sandwood has gone dormant in like in August, mid-August, but the cambium tissue and the rootstocks are still slipping. And so I grafted up about 300 trees of, of the, these cider varieties, Ellis Bitter, Bulmer's Norman, Adai Deor, Bramley Seedling, um, so on. And, uh, and yeah, then I think I just said to my dad at some point, maybe at Christmas, like, you know, uh, are you ever going to do anything with that hayfield, you know, at the, on the, the bottom hayfield, you know, the really steep one, like, I, cause, because uh, I've got 300 trees and I have no place to put them. And, and so I don't know how he thought that was, I don't know. I guess he was. But Chris has always wanted to be a farmer. (laughs) (laughs) And, and yeah. The things dads do for their kids. And then Ezra, what's your take? Were you there at this time? You know, what's your take on these early days? Um, I think your, your question about like the sequence of events is kind of interesting because um, there is a bunch of twists and turns to the, like this story. Um, a lot of people have heard about the, oh, I don't know if a lot of people have heard, but I think Autumn's and I've made the connection with Farnham Hill a lot about in regards to their support and, um, Autumn's unannounced trip there. But, um, there's like been a lot of, uh, moves and drama in the kind of time leading up to, I guess, the very moment that we're speaking in a way. But um, I don't know, was it like a few years before I like met Autumn, James had a traumatic brain injury and um, Autumn was, I guess, still trying to make it work at Little Tree, which is the you pick that James owned right outside of Ithaca, but he was completely incapacitated and there was a kind of um, untenable situation with his ex-wife and her husband at that location. Um, So I think I dropped in to help with like a bottling um, there at Little Tree because our parents, my, our our mothers are friends, but I'm like 12 years older than Autumn, so I never knew her like growing up. But I was interested in winemaking, so I had heard that she needed help. So I came. yeah, our our mothers were trying to get us together for years. <laughs> you were like since Autumn was seven. <laughs> oh, stop it! <laughs> so um, like we, she always makes that reference. I mean, like whatever we were she's teaching um our kids uh the history of hip-hop is there is that something called a dowry yeah dowry. <laughs> that's supposed to be funny parents, <laughs> I don't know. but My oh. <laughs> let's let's move it. this on keep going okay so you guys it took many how many years did it take you from the time you first went to steve woods until you planted those 300 trees and you were actually harvesting apples from them well, that was kind of the point that I was going to make originally, which is to say that like, because we started making cider with, we started making cider right away. Like I start like after I visited Steve, I was like, oh, wow, I'm going for this. I went to England. I took a class. I made a little business plan 
And I think maybe the next fall I uh, bought some apples from Steve Wood, like many people have done when they start their cider businesses. And I also, you know, pressed some apples at the farm and, and opened that next spring at, at the Yupik orchard. So, so I guess my point was sort of that, like, because, because we, but the, you know, then right around that time, those, those trees went into the ground. Well, we didn't harvest anything off of those trees for another eight years. Think about that. Eight years there. Now you can, you can get a crop somewhat sooner with more modern um, high density planting systems, but I planted these on semi-dwarfing trees and trained them to center leader and it was unfenced. And yeah, but it but eight years. That's that's the real that is the reality of planting a perennial orchard. Um and so even though we've been in, you know, had a cider license since two thousand, you know, this journey of planting trees and planting more trees and um and harvesting the fruit from them slowly and increasingly and learning what the different varieties do on our site um, and what we thought we were going to love and don't like and have to tear out and plant new stuff and what we love and didn't plant nearly enough of and are planting more of and so on and so forth. It's, it's really sort of mind boggling and it's, it's, a long, a long, long project that's probably, you know, longer than we have, certainly. No, it's a whole amazing story. And let's jump ahead to like 2011, 2011 was when the first Cider Week New York happened. And I remember I was lucky enough to be there in the beginning in New York City. And it's probably when I first started tasting ciders like yours. So where were you at in, in 2011? And what were some of the first ciders um or the ciders then that, that you were selling in New York City to jump ahead. You can give me some backstory. Pick, pick like two ciders that you were selling in 2011 or 2012. Well, in 2011 and 2012, um, we were selling Autumn's Gold, which is a, is a blend that we've made right from the beginning. Um, that is, you know, our idea, sort of like our translation of, how do I say this? Like, a new world, an American version of a bittersweet cider, a classic bittersweet cider that has always had, um, you know, a large component of bittersweet apples in it. And I remember, because I remember this probably, we, we, we used to sell at the green market in New York City. And that's really how our business actually ended up kind of getting its start and getting its footing. And Back probably before 2011, before Cider Week started, you know, uh, we were we were in business for 10 years before that. <laughs> and we were selling cider by literally giving a taste to every single person. Like, in New York City. Every single person who Queens. ever bought a bottle from us tasted it first because they had no idea what it was. And, you know, this is something that Ezra and I laugh about because it seems so funny now, but like, People had in their minds, it was so ingrained in their mind that cider is, um, you know, like cloudy, unfiltered juice that you buy um, at an orchard, you know, 
And so people would come up and they would taste it. And our ciders are, you know, almost all of our ciders are really dry. And it would be a bone dry cider that is naturally sparkling, made with a champagne method. And they would, in a champagne bottle with a champagne cork. And they would love it. And they said, oh my gosh, this is so delicious. Does this have alcohol in it? But, but, but yeah, I mean, it's such a different time because, you know, it was, there's a, there's a part of it that was really exhilarating because it was really like, you know, people were, you know, just, huh, here's this new thing. I've never heard of it. I'm going to try it. Wow. I like it. I'm going to buy a bottle. I'm going to buy a case. I'm going to tell my friends, whatever. And I remember, um, I remember, uh, when Peter Hoffman would come through the green market on his bicycle. And of course I had no idea who he was. And uh, he said, well, uh, he came and he tasted and he said, uh, you know, I'm going to take a couple of bottles, but, uh, but maybe next week you could come and, and drop a case off at my restaurant. And um, I think my mom had what came and did market with me really maybe the week that I did that. And, oh, and, cool. she, and, and, and I, and, and so we, we went down there and, uh, I was so nervous and I was like, oh my gosh, this is like a real restaurant yeah. in New York City and the cider is on the menu and we sat down at the table. Oh, you sat down at yeah, a table? and had a cheese plate with the cider. This, and, is, this is at Savoy? Yeah, it was at Savoy. Oh, and, that is cool. Uh, and... I said, like, whatever you do, mom, don't, don't say to anybody, like, but yeah, that, I mean, that really was, was a thrill. And that, that really was people like Peter, you know, and um, restaurants like Gramercy Tavern that bought, bought cider and put it on their menus before 2011, you know, that was a big, a big, a big piece of the puzzle of cider coming together. And then, yes, of course, you know, the first Cider Week um, that Sarah Grady organized. And uh, I believe we had, I believe we had the trade tasting at Jimmy's number 43. No, is that true? Yeah, that's why I was lucky just to be part of the whole thing. Um, I think there was nobody else was willing to host, to sponsor and host the trade tasting. And I was like, I'll do it if you don't have anybody in the whole city. Um, and that's what happened. So that's what I meant. And that was, that was amazing. You know, it was amazing. And it was really was um, and, and a really talking, good Since we're talking that time, yeah, it, 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 it was that strange. I mean, the first, earlier that year, Sarah Grady, so Glenwood had hosted a Cider Week organizational meeting. And she just brought together in one room what what you would do if you were doing anything in, in the city with industry. She had some restaurant people, some beer wholesalers, some wine people, and some experts. And nobody, other, other than a, a few of the bigger cider companies, there was nobody who really knew anything about cider. And she put that together. So... Um, it it for me that that's when it all started. But for you guys back in the late two thousands, so when you were selling at the at the markets, um, who else in your area? Because I want I want to steer this towards the Finger Lakes a little bit, just to talk about how special your region is. Who else was also making serious cider in in the late two thousands near you? There was Bellwether at that time. Other than Bellwether. I don't know. I mean, I can't tell you exactly when everybody started, but I know when we opened, when we first got our license, there was, 
because I remember like there was bellwether and there was a few, there was like maybe one or two other, you know, Apple wineries in the state. I remember that because it was like this confusing thing at the time. What's the difference between cider and apple wine? And so there was like the two of us, bellwether and us once we got our license. And I like, I think when I looked a couple of years ago, there's like 80. So the ones like black diamond, Redbird, they weren't they weren't making cider back then. No, not when we started. No, that that was probably like you say. Oh my gosh! I mean, I can't, I don't know. I don't have a timeline in my mind, but that was probably yeah, like in the early teens or something. Yeah, yeah. And then, what was the license that you got first? I mean, was there a farm cidery license back then? No, no. And we still have the same license. We have a farm winery license. Yep. The farm cidery license was a new thing that happened just a couple of years ago. Yeah. It's, it's amazing how much has changed in a short time. Um, going back to your region, let's, I want to talk about the, the finger. You know, it's really finger lakes. You're actually in, tell us about what your little micro climate is. You know, yeah. there's something yeah, so, special there. Yeah. So, um, I mean, the Finger Lakes is a very broad term. There's a Finger Lakes ADA for wine. There's a Finger Lakes as defined by like tourism. You know, there's a, there's, there's, there's all sorts of ways to define Finger Lakes, but I kind of think of it as like a sort of a a geological place. So um, when the glaciers came down, they came, well, they came down twice, but um, when they came down, um, and cut their way across this sort of like Devonian peneplain, which had, you know, undulations and like a, a sort of, but, but a sort of like vague kind of gradual um, elevation. Um, there, there was a, a, a sort of uh, a watershed divide, if you will, um, that is still actually the watershed divide that exists today, more or less. And that is sort of right where we are perched. And so what happened, and, and that and that is essentially um, also sort of the where the Appalachian Mountains, the Northern Appalachian Plateau kind of comes to an end and, and crashes down. And so what happened is as the glaciers were coming down um, from up north, they sort of stalled in their flow moving south in this high elevation point. And that's how they dug out the Finger Lakes because glaciers are, you know, like rivers of ice and they're moving and they're churning and they're like digging things up. Um, And so we, our orchard is sort of located in this kind of, um, we call it the Emerald Necklace. It's this high elevation area that um, sort of flanks the kind of southern edges of the Finger Lakes. It's hard to it's hard for me to describe this. I want a, a map. I want to show people on on a podcast. Um, but but yeah, it's 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 really cool. And one of the things that I think is really cool about the Finger Lakes and why it's this really exciting region for growing apples is because within the Finger Lakes there exists all of these really super diverse microclimates. Um, because the geology is is really like varied and, and unique. And so there's there's places where people are growing apples in glacial till, for example. And this is the material that the glaciers 
brought with them from New England and has like more limestone in it and a lot of granite and gravel and um, materials like that. And then there's people who are growing apples in sort of what I like to think of as the native soil, but the, the material from the shale that is the bedrock of this area that's just been weathered and breaking down in the spot, the spot where it is, you know, and then there's people like us who are growing orchard, growing apples in some of each, because actually like on our farm, there's a glacial till deposit and there's a cliff that a glacier cut off and it has all the native material on it. And so really, really diverse soils. And then also, you know, you can be, you know, you can, you, you can be down by the lake and you can be, you know, like 900 feet in elevation, um, 900 feet above sea level. And then you can be um, where we are in the Emerald Necklace, not our, our, our orchard's about between 1100 and 1500 feet. Um, but you, there's apple trees as high as 2100 feet. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's something I think that is just going to become more and more and more interesting about the Finger Lakes as there are more cideries, as people are doing a better job at explaining to, to cider drinkers, like what is actually unique about their site and their terroir, um, as, as more and more people are growing enough cider apples to make single varietal ciders so that you can, you know, travel up this little route through the Finger Lakes and taste Kingston Black all of your way through. Um, yeah, so there's a lot to look forward to and a lot that's going on. That's amazing. So it's like Burgundy where even different slopes uh, make totally different wines. Um, just for, from your portfolio, so like, tell me one cider that's grown on, if, if you break it down by this, one cider grown on the, the glacial till soil and one that's grown on the native shale soil. I mean, if that's actually a, a good example. Yeah, well, um, so uh, one cider that, gosh, we've done this a couple of times. We didn't do it this year. Um, and we didn't do it last year, but I think we did it year before, and I hope we do it again soon. You know, it's, it, some of it's related to the biennialism of the trees, but um, Northern Spy is a great example. It's a really um, cool apple because it 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 is really 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 affected by where it grows. So you can be growing it in in some places. It just gets this really sort of saline kind of minerally character and then you can grow it in some places and it's it's really aromatic and sweet and and like sort of pretty um but uh yeah so northern spy is a, is a really good example of a cider that we grow very distinctly in both places and have made ciders from both those places in the same year and what that same year what, what what's the difference between that same apple variety northern spy grown in two different soils is there anything obvious? Um, so I think that the 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 cider apple, the northern spy apples, grown on thin soils, native shale soils. Um, the cider is more; it actually has more tannins, more sort of energy. Um, it tends to have more like, sp or like spicy kind of aromatics. Um, 
spicy aromatics and and also like like honey and waxy aromatics. Um, the uh, the 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 spot the northern spy grown in the glacial till and there's there's one variable here that's a little bit throws it off because those trees are quite a bit older. Um, but but those trees meet the cider. I always find it to have like more body, like a lot more on the mid palate. Um, you know, almost, almost as if it's like, like almost if it has like a viscosity or something, like it's like thicker. Um, and also, you know, more like fruit, like fruit forward characteristics. So. That's great. So now I'm going to jump around with you guys. So, um, we know that it's cider week and I've noticed that it's virtual cider week. Um, it, it seems that some restaurants in New York City are featuring cider flights. I don't really know what else you can do um, this time of year. Do you, is there anybody in New York City as we're doing flights or doing any features with Eve Cider right now? Not that I know of. I have to admit to kind of taking a, a break this year from Cider Week um, and not pursuing like any like non-virtual events in the city. Um, there's uh, of course there's places that have our cider, but I don't, I don't know of any place that's um, doing yep. a feature. Of so our who cider. has your cider right now? If you want to list a couple of places, cause there's still well, people doing things in New York. So <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> yes. there's still people doing things. I mean, <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, hold on for a second. I've got to, refresh my memory but keep 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 talking and i'll yeah well you know so today by the time you listen to this it might be a couple weeks but today uh you know the state just announced that all liquor licenses have to stop serving at 10 p.m um and we are just very thankful that so many restaurants can still be open and the outdoor dining has really been successful um i love i love your stuff and uh i I would feature it if, if i were open I know Hortas on First Avenue in the East Village. I, it's one of my favorite tapas restaurants. They're doing a flight with Metal House, which is which is from upstate. But I, I think I should just place you guys as you know, really being in this creme de la creme of cider as a fine you know fine beverage. Um, I'd really like to let people know that if you really want to, if you see an Eve cider of anything, it's going to be dry. It's going to be wonderful. You might have an ice cider. I mean, there's not too many others that you could recommend across the board, um, and it's from New York State. So we're going to jump over. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch. The Hearst family has raised cattle on California's central coast since 1865. Today, Hearst Ranch's signature product is their 100% grass-fed, completely hormone and antibiotic-free beef. The Hearst Ranches have always treated their animals with great care. Their cattle live a completely natural existence as foragers and grazers. Well-managed grazing fertilizes the land naturally, sustains a seasonal rhythm to the ranches, and produces a remarkable meat whose flavor is the authentic taste of the American West. Hearst Ranch beef is available seasonally, May through August, in select Whole Food markets throughout California, and all year round at their retail locations in San Simeon and Paso Robles. 
And now, HRN listeners in Arizona, Nevada, and California can get Hearst Ranch beef delivered right to their door through Larder Meat Company. Go to lardermeatco.com and shop the 100% grass-fed box to stock your freezer with Hearst Ranch beef. That's L-A-R-D-E-R, meatco.com. Learn more about the storied history, farming practices, and conservation efforts of Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. It's Cider Week NYC. We have a special recording with Autumn and Ezra of Eve Cidery up in uh, Finger Lakes, Van Etten, uh, New York. We're talking remotely. And big shout out, heritageradionetwork.org. Become a member. Um, so Autumn and, and Ezra, so just some basic questions. So I'm a young person, and I want to learn about making cider. So I'm going to show up on your at your farm for cider 101 what would you have me do <laughs> what would you have me do tomorrow like whatever you're doing tomorrow in the next couple of days i want to hear like the schedule on the farm this time of year what are you doing oh this time of year well so um yeah one of the reasons why cider week is like so so intense for cider makers is that we have we like literally just finished our last press over the weekend of the season, and that's like a it's just a super intense season um, where you don't catch a break, and you've got to get everything harvested and pressed and racked and into barrels or into tanks and get the fermentations under the underway and do it all before the weather turns and the apples freeze and you lose your chance. Um, so we we've actually just been like for the for the last I think three days we've been we've been like sleeping because it's the first time we've been sleeping. <laughs> you know, like literally, I I think we slept ten hours today last night. <laughs> so oh, like, really, yeah. I feel like I could sleep forever. Um, and so yeah, we're like in a little bit of a transition point right now. We're just like trying to catch up and like. Um, uh, like regain our vitality and our health and stuff. And um, what's going on in the orchard is that um, we, we have a certified organic orchard. And so because of that, we need to put tree guards on the trees so that the mice don't eat the, the um, trunks over the winter because, you know, we don't put like poison in our orchard or anything like that. So there's a little bit of like, you know, tucking the trees in and putting them to bed. And, um, and then they're, they're just, they're going to sleep right now. So they're just going to go to sleep and we're going to, um, you know, let them rest until we start pruning probably in March. And in the cidery, what's happening is, uh, we have, oh my gosh, we have probably about 32 different, um, batches of cider going it's all natural fermentations, so I monitor it pretty closely. I'm checking it, um, you know, every several days and making sure that the fermentations are going, going the way I want them to be going. And um, we 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 started making some pet nat, and that's something that uh, basically you're you're going to be bottling the cider before the primary has finished. Uh, so that you can capture, you know, so that it can continue to ferment a little bit in the bottle and you will capture the 
carbonation that's created from it finishing the fermentation in the bottle. And that's like kind of a fun one because you got to catch it at just the right time. So um, I can't tell you when that's going to happen, but we're, you know, paying close attention because we're moving towards that. So, it, so and, Autumn, how, how does that yeah. do? So we all know Pet Nat from raw wine, natural wine. How, how is it doing with, with your products? I think it's like, it's, I really love it as, I really love a cider Pet Nat as something that is really fresh. It ha you know, it's, it's really like vibrant and fresh. And, um, I think it goes really well with particularly with some of the more like really, um, tart and acidic varieties. Um, and we also make a pet nat out of wild foraged fruit, um, which tends to be really tart. And, and so I like that kind of that fresh, raw, like super bright and zingy, flavor profile in a pet nut cider. And yeah, people, people have been like exposed to a lot of pet nut, like through the natural wine movement. And so they're really um, open to trying it and liking it. And it, is your pet nut cider, is it something that it, it reaches a certain point and you have to drink it then, or, or can you hold no. on to it? No, it's, it's similar to your others. I opened, I opened, um, a bottle of a pet nat that we made last year. And, you know, it's an, you know, as we know, it's a natural product. Um, and so it was diff definitely different than when I was drinking it in the spring. I feel like I, I was drinking it in the spring and it was like, ugh, like the sun is coming out and everyone's, you know, feeling so cooped up from the pandemic. Um, but it's like, it's like fresh and bright and it had like just a little bit of residual sweetness to it to offset that. And then when I had it on my birthday, um, a couple of weeks ago, it had gotten quite a bit drier and like, you know, like more creamy. So, so yeah, it's, it changes, but it's not going to, you know, that, that, that is in fact part of the deal is like, you need to really, be right on with the specific gravity when you bottle it. Cause you certainly would not want to make a mistake and create a bomb in a bottle. You know what I'm saying? Oh yeah. And then I just want to ask the obvious question from your work in, in the, the orchard and going way back 20 years, how did you learn about cider making? Was it trial and error? Did you take a course? Was there anyone giving you uh, tips? I think that's a really good question because uh, we get that question all the time now from people who want to, you know, start making cider. And um, I don't know how many people actually are doing it who went through like an enology program. It's, I know. It feels know. like people are like also starting with out degrees, the people who are interested in like starting cideries. Yeah. And, 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 you know, we learned so much and I actually have to really give Ezra credit for this because he was just so, um, unselfconscious. Yeah, <laughs> really. That's my but, but, you know, that's one of the things about the, the Finger Lakes cider industry has been very influenced by the Finger Lakes wine industry. You know, Eric Schatt of Redbird, you know, uh, worked for Veeamer, um, and, uh, and, you know, we certainly got a lot of mentorship um, in the early days from other Finger Lakes winemakers. 
So, you know, there was that and, and there was, uh, you know, tasting and drinking a lot and really, really, really refining a vision for ourselves about, you know, what, what we were aiming for and what we wanted to make and what we sort of like put on a pedestal and, and idolized. And, and there was also, um, you know, we've never been afraid to throw cider away. <laughs> That's certainly like yeah. one of our strengths, I guess. Right. <laughs> I mean, we've made so many, but anyways, I, I, I mean, just to give credit, I mean, there was, you know, there was like probably always like three people that it seemed like there was always like a last minute crisis that, I, that one of us was calling for advice. And I, I, they're just going through my mind now. Some were, yeah, for like um, winemakers that for whatever reason we felt like we had a personal enough relationship with that we could ask for like nitty gritty advice. And then there was a few people like in industry, not um, like production industry, but like um, manufacturers um, who were available to us um, in, in companies that, I mean, they just really gave of themselves and there, yeah, it just seemed like at that time there there were so many things where we were just like, what is going on? I have no idea what, why well, is this happening and to I me? mean, a lot of what we were doing, we were inventing, <laughs> quite frankly, no, because, totally. because there, there are, this is a new industry. You know what I mean? This is a, this is a new thing that, that people have been making cider commercially in the U.S. And I, I mean, I think of the things that we did. I mean, it's insane. And just that we just had totally also for the scale of production that we were doing, which, or that, you know, we're doing now actually, but um, there wasn't really a model that we could look to, you know, there was like, yeah, that was the problem. I think there was the, um, there was the, the, the commercial production, facility you know with like a full bottling line automated bottling line and then there was like equipment made for the um you know for the what do you call it the the, the hobbyist the home brewer yeah. and 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 we use that equipment you know to a certain extent yeah like just to so, be just to like and, point this out i think um in case any of your listeners don't know but like you know we started this business. I started this business with money like I made from waitressing, which, you know, will give you an idea of what we started the business. Um, and so, you know, you know, every, every tank we, we bought, you know, at the end of the season when we had, you know, made the money from the cider. And so that is like a really, that is one thing about, um, yeah, because, uh, you know, people were able, people thought about starting wineries and, and having investments and, you know, with cider, I think, I think almost everybody I know in the Finger Lakes has done kind of the same thing that we have because it's, it's so new and it's such a gamble and it's like, you know, uh, how do you have this little business and, and actually, you know, make it efficient for production without buying a bottling line, for example. So 
Well, then j j jumping to styles, because those are other choices you have to make when you're trying to save your business. I remember that the uh, first year or two of Cider Week, Steve Wood at Farnham Hill was adamant that he was only going to make still cider. Um, at, at one point, at one point, did cider makers like in your circle kind of decide that you would also have to make a some type of sparkling cider? Because I remember by 2015, every every top cider in the Northeast had a really good sparkling cider, and then people were bummed because I didn't have sour still cider. So um, we've been making sparkling cider uh, with the traditional method, champagne style cider, since. 2002 when we got our license that's the first cider that we made was autumn's gold uh bittersweet apples with the champagne method um so that's always been kind of our 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 main focus jimmy i do have um information with regard to where I, to get our cider in the city when you want that oh go for it ezra well um the grape collective in manhattan pj's First Avenue Vintner, Ninth Avenue Vintner, Riverdale Vintner. They've all been like really supportive of us for a long time. Um, and Big Nose Full Body, um, Columbia Wine Company in Brooklyn. Columbia Wine Company is one um, that's currently selling us. The list of like bottle shops is definitely longer than the list of restaurants, um, I guess, owing to what's going on in the city still. Um, Dante. West Village, um, Silver Apricot, um, American Bar in Queens has a Sullivan Street Bakery, but definitely more bottle shops. I'm going to jump around. So, yeah, that, that whole style thing, it, it sounds like you figured it out in the beginning. And it does make sense. The, the shape of your bottle and everything is champagne worthy. Um, I, I love drinking your ciders. You have some really good information on, on your site. Um, Tell us about your your philosophy of cider pairing. You said something about serving cider with peasant food. Uh, <laughs> where did you read that? Is that is that on our website? Is that it's all yeah. through our website? Look up Eve Cidery <laughs> cider pairing. There's, all, yeah. there's some really good stuff there. When did we start having a website? Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, cider. The way that I first tasted cider was. Um, at, uh, in a in a, a farmhouse of a, a local couple, uh, Peggy Hayne and Peter Hoover. Peter has um, since passed. Peter's was a, a real tremendous um, sort of cider enthusiast, and had you know influenced a lot of people in the Finger Lakes, and and also probably inspired a lot of people in the uh, probably everybody who's making cider in the Finger Lakes today was inspired by Peter Hoover originally. But I first had their cider you know their homemade cider in their farmhouse with like just a basic fall meal that you would make in the finger lakes you know like some some uh you know cooked collards and you know roasted squash and uh, you know i think maybe a roast that peggy had made and um yeah i think that's that's like sort of this uh, connection that that I'll always have because cider is an inherently an agricultural product, and so um, I think about you know the, the the peasants like us who are you know out there working 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 on the land and 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 taking care of the trees and stuff and and coming home at night to a bowl of soup and a, a, a crusty hunk of bread slathered with butter and that that is really like a natural. 
include pairing for cider. So and hard cider is is an is an everyday drink, isn't it? I really think it 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 needs to be an everyday drink. I think that every every person, you know, every every person needs to have cider in their pantry and that it has a place at the American table alongside beer and wine. And um, there are many, many, many occasions when cider would be, you know, my beverage of choice. Well, that's great. Now, a question more about going back to agriculture. We're going to wrap up soon. The other day I talked to um, West County in Massachusetts, Field Maloney, and someone asked a question which I found obnoxious, (laughs) but it was about, you know, your farming practices. Do you have any complementary growths, anything that you're growing in or around your apple trees? Hmm. You mean like um, companion plantings? That's probably a better term. Um, for example, we have comfrey um, in maybe five of our um, younger plantings in one of our orchards interspersed with the trees. <clears throat> you were going to say something? No. Um, yeah. Um, we've planted clover. Um, I've just, you know, it's like we do these things and I think to myself, oh, frick, that was a lot of work. <laughs> but now like um, clover, the clover has really taken off. You can see the strips just like right around the trees, you know, like the cider varieties drop and um, we don't have roundup strips down our rows for other reasons, because we don't use roundup um, because we're certified organic, but um, you want a nice landing spot for the apples and um, clover is a nice, a nice bed. Those well, are two was, that we planted. Yeah, go ahead. That's that's a great answer. You know, uh, I had never thought of that. A landing spot. I, I keep hearing stories of uh, people in your area who say, "Well, we're fighting off. We're going into the national forest, and we're fighting off the cows that are grazing on the apples or something." I know <laughs> you've got a lot of great stories. I, really, I, I think this has been a really great show. This is definitely one of many we're going to do with you because I, I just started tapping the surface with you guys. And the last question, I'm just, again, noticing some of the information you have. I still find it not as clear to me, but I know that some folk in the Finger Lakes are talking about regenerative agriculture and some roots of, of native peoples in the land. How, how does that play out in what you're doing and what others in your region are doing? Like, what is it? That's a really good question. And do, actually, do you want to make a plan to do a show on this? Because I'm like, there's, I, I'm about to talk for an hour and a half right now. <laughs> I know you don't have that kind of time. <laughs> yeah, um, no, we, we will. But um, yeah, just give me the, the brief summary because I think it was Melissa Madden who first talked to me about it over a year or two ago. And I was like, oh, you mean like just letting the earth go back to what it was, like no till or something. I didn't understand the the deeper meaning. Well, you know, regenerative agriculture is, it's, and, and, and actually, I mean, I think this is something that all of, I think a lot of my colleagues and, 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 and us as well are just really starting to grapple with and understand um, the layers of, of context and meaning behind this. You know, 
a lot of the growers in the Finger Lake and ourselves included have been very, very dedicated to um, sustainable farming and, you know, trying to take that to like better and better levels. And, and I, you know, if, if any of your listeners are familiar with conventional commercial apple growing in New York state and the Northeast, you'll know that it is one of the most chemically intensive types of produce that is grown. Um, and, 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 you know, I came up in that. I, I was exposed to that. I, I worked in settings like that. I've, I myself have personally sprayed many miles of Roundup in my life. And um, it, there's, you know, there's, there's a whole reason like why that is. And I, and I don't want to get too crazy down that rabbit hole, but I will say that, you know, between uh, Cornell university and, and, you know, the, <laughs> whatever, like Apple organizations exist in New York state, the message had been very clear for a very long time that it would be impossible to grow apples organically in New York state. And I think the cider industry has done, a, you know, Specifically, I would say the Finger Lake cider industry and the people involved in that have done a really exceptional job in proving them wrong. Um, and that I think your listeners would walk into, you know, our orchards, for example, and it would be like the kind of place that they would want to imagine being and taking their kids and where they would see nature and butterflies and, and you know, many different plants growing on the floor of the orchard, as you were mentioning. Those ideas, though, that we kind of like ourselves forged our way and like felt like we were inventing, you know, uh, indigenous people have been growing orchards, you know, for many thousands of years without causing climate change, without, you know, poisoning uh, the rivers and the soil and, and degrading the topsoil. And so there's, you know, something we're all grappling with, I think, especially in this time of, you know, just sort of like collective consciousness raising around these issues is, you know, regenerative of agriculture isn't something that like white farmers just invented. And, and once you start going down that line, you really start thinking about, um, <sighs> well, geez, like, where is my farm actually located? And, you know, what, 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 whatever happened to that treaty and, you know, who broke the treaty with the Haudenosaunee and like, what is, what are, what are we actually doing here? And I think that's a big conversation that's going yeah. on. In our no, no, it's, you know? I know, and I know it's going on where you guys are. So we, I'm going to follow up with you that in the winter was probably a good time to have a regenerative agriculture talk with, with you and a few others. So you guys are awesome. So let's do the quick run through. Um, when I'm shopping for Eve cider at these great, mostly wine stores right now, but of, of anywhere, what's out there right now? What, what are some of the, the selections that are available now in the New York City area? Uh, with Eve I would, I would, I would say right now, like especially um, with the fall meals that um, happen in November, I would really recommend Autumn's Gold. I mentioned it a couple of times. Um, it's it's really showing beautifully right now. The 2019 
um, version. It's a, it's um, a, like a, a really rich tannic cider um, that also has a lot of like soft, beautiful, ripe, bittersweet fruit. And it pairs wonderfully with like a roasted bird and, um, you know, squash and all of that stuff. So um, that's, that's what I, that's what I'm like would advocate for trying. Um, you may find a little bit of Northern Spy still left on the shelf and um, snap it up because there's not a lot of it and it's going to disappear and it's um, dry and chalky and lemony and like absolutely refreshing. It's delicious with oysters. Um, and then, you know, don't forget um, the Essence Ice Cider. Last year we made our essence, about half of the apples that we used in the essence, we wild foraged. And um, so it's, it's a really special batch. It's, it's, it's actually got these like gorgeous tingly tannins and a lot of uh, acidity and like, like ripe red fruit, like rose hippie kind of fruit. Um, and it's like a, it's like a really special dessert to have right now in fall. Well, that's great. And everybody, thanks. Big shout out to Cider Week NYC, all of New York Cider. Um, they're doing a great job. They kept all the Cider Weeks going in the pandemic. Uh, Cider Week Hudson Valley, Cider Week Finger Lakes, and Cider Week New York City. So that's about it. Um, thank you so much for joining me, Autumn and Ezra of Eve Cidery. Big shout out thank to our producer, again. Dylan Hoyer, and engineer Matt Patterson. Um, I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host of Beer Sessions Radio during Cider Week NYC. And we'll catch you next time on Heritage Radio Network. See you guys later. Bye. Woo! Bye. Bye. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.